attention. My guest today is well known in the world of sports science and considered an expert in this subject. He is the author of Sport and the Brain, the Science of Preparing, Enduring and Winning, and has over 185 scientific articles, scientists over 10,000 times. He's been a consultant for multiple high-performance organizations, including the British Ministry of Defense, Juventus, Mapai Cycling Team, ASICS, and in 2018, he began his post at the University of Bologna, where he teaches applied physiology and training methodology. My guest today is Professor Samuel Macora. Welcome, Sam. Hi, Bill. Thank you for having me and for letting me speak to your audience, which sounds like a similar age of mine. So <laughs> it's nice. I think we have, <laughs> we have a lot of masters rowers around the world that are really interested in hearing from you today. I know that Greg Benning would like to be here to be talking with you today, but Greg, you'll just have to put up with the podcast while you're doing one of your long ergos. So maybe to get started, to give the, the, the masters rowers some knowledge about you, how would you describe what it is, what you do? Well, I'm a, I guess I'm a standard academic. So these days <laughs> a lot of uh, admin, <laughs> but of course, the reason why I do this job is uh, to do research. So I do research primarily at this stage applied to endurance performance and we'll get later to, to the why of this research. And of course, I also teach students, undergraduate and uh, postgraduate uh, students in sports science here in Italy. And how did you get started? Yes, like many other people, you know, uh, when I was an actor, I was very interested to find ways to optimize my performance with the strength conditioning and nutrition supplements, all those kind of things. So I was very interested in the, in this side of uh, sport. And that led me to join the High Institute of Physical Education. In those days, there was no sports science and I'm that old in Italy. So I was, I studied in, in Milan, physical education for my first degree. And then well, a lot of things, the military service and work. And, but then I went to the United States in Wisconsin for my master because I wanted to focus on exercise physiology and also work more on my kind of research skills. That was a good, very good experience. I loved it. And then for a year, actually, I went back to Italy and I worked at the school of sport of the Italian Olympic committee in Rome, doing a variety of tests, including I, I did a couple of testing sessions with the, you know, Italian national rowing team. So very good rowers indeed. I couldn't believe how these so big guys can fit in such a small, in such a small boat. So I appreciated the skill, the skills associated with, with rowing that when you see it on TV, you don't realize, I think how much skills and you, you just see the pain, the endurance, right? But yeah, I appreciate the skills that you guys have to, to have in order to perform well. And, and then I, I really wanted to do research and do an academic career. So uh, I was very lucky to get a studentship to move to the UK in Wales, very beautiful part of the world where I did my PhD, actually my PhD was in completely different topic, which was basically how to reduce muscle wasting in uh, specifically my PhD was in people with rheumatoid arthritis, so no athletes, <laughs> but at the same time, I always kept a bit of a, a foot in sports science because I was working, as you said, 
as a consultant in those days, primarily for the MAPEI, uh, which was one of the best professional cycling teams in the world in the nineties, early two thousands. So that, that's what I did. And then I started my career first in, in Bangor, in the UK and in Wales, then years of Kent, and then as you said, a couple of years ago, I moved back to Italy. And what's the story around the Ministry of Defence? The Ministry of Defence in the UK is very good at, they look for uh, very innovative research and they are very willing to take risks more than other organisations. And in recent years, they realized that it's not just about weapons and radar systems and stuff like cybersecurity, although obviously very important, but they, they needed to do more research to focus on their personnel, on the human component of, of the system. So they funded quite a lot of research on, on a variety of topics, really very multidisciplinary. So when I proposed to them this uh, idea of brain endurance training, which I guess we'll uh, unpack a little bit later. They, they were very keen because there are actually a lot of similarity between elite sport and, and soldier performance. You have to perform under stress, perform physically, but at the same time, you have to, to be currently uh, alert and be able to react quickly. So there are a lot of similarities. So they were very interesting what training the training could do to the performance of, of the soldiers. Interesting. So I first came across you a, a couple of years ago with some of your publications, but really was thrilled to, to see you live or pre-recorded and then live at uh, a summit uh, last year, whilst we we're all under lockdown, where you talked about the perception of effort and endurance performance. And then you've also got quite a few of your lectures at Kent university online on YouTube. Uh, as well as some other presentations. Can you talk us through a little bit around what was the motivation around first exploring this perception of asset and how you think it limits performance and sports in the brain, the book that you published, yes. draw you to that point? Yeah. Well, if you see my lectures, you definitely can tell that what drove me to that topic is not my passion for endurance sport. <laughs> Actually, I was, I'm a weird Italian. My main sport was American football. That was another reason to go to the States. I'm a former linebacker, so um, not, not an endurance athlete. However, um, obviously during my physical education years, we will be fitter. I did a lot of uh, cross country and also managed to do a, a short triathlon in my youth. So I, I have some experience, but actually my interest is primarily came actually from my clinical work. So when I was working with a patient with rheumatoid aromatic conditions, and then I started to work with the patient on dialysis which then soon after that, unfortunately, my mom got very suddenly, she had kidney damage, so she had to, to go on dialysis herself. So I had also in my own family, the, the experience, the patient that were participating in my research were reporting. And it was about this, the feeling of fatigue. So in exercise physiology, we've always been into, because fatigue is a word that has many different meanings. So when people talk about fatigue, it's very important that you and also your listeners try to have clear exactly what they mean by that word. The fact that I talk about fatigue, somebody else talk about fatigue doesn't necessarily mean we're talking about the same thing. And so fatigue in exercise physiology is the, is what we call mass, muscle fatigue. So the fact that your uh, with usage with, when you use your muscle to do exercise, there is a progressive decline in the ability of the muscle to produce force and power. 
And this is what we measure also in the lab. And there's been a lot of research, a lot of research on the mechanisms, both at muscle level, but also at uh, central level system level, we call it central fatigue or peripheral fatigue, whether it's in the central nervous system or the muscles. But that's about, if you like, the purely physiological, pure kind of motor function of your muscles. So, you know, all the things about lactic acid, you guys, you love it, right? So <laughs> all those, it's, it, it all comes from studying muscle fatigue at the physiological level. However, what I noticed with the patient was that they felt fatigue. It was a feeling, it was a, a subjective a sensation, a perception. And also what I noticed is that it was very, okay, they tend to have like a level of chronic fatigue, but they have a lot of fluctuations. And with my mom, with dialysis patients, it's really absolutely associated with the dialysis itself. So obviously, I mean, people do not change their level of muscular fitness or cardiorespiratory fitness one day to another. I mean, it doesn't change that. When something changes so quickly, is is a sign that's associated with the central nervous system. And I realized that feeling of fatigue was actually what was disabling them more than the actual, let's say, muscle atrophy, which was the topic of my PhD. And so I got interested in this and I decided to invest uh, my first sabbatical to study psychology because in order to understand fatigue as a feeling, you need to understand that you have to, a little, to understand a little bit, at least the science that studies your mind, your feelings, your behavior, your motivation, your emotion, your thoughts, which is psychology, not physiology. And so I spent this time in, at the school of psychology back in, at Bangor university, which is by the way, it's a very good school, uh, in the UK and try to understand the theories and the methodologies. I took part in a lot of experiments as a, as a guinea pig myself, just understand how they, they worked. And then when I came back, I integrated that theories and those methodology with exercise physiology in order to understand fatigue, but because my primary interest is clinical in a way. Yeah. However, what I realized is that we don't know much about this feeling of fatigue even in healthy people. And obviously you cannot study, uh, let's say pain in people with chronic pain. If you don't know the physiology of pain in, in, in normal people, the normal physiology of pain, the same with fatigue. So what are the best people to study fatigue with, which are healthy endurance athletes. So yeah. you see, this is the, this is how I got into endurance athletes. Not so much, not, it's not a passion. Although I mean, I like. I come from physical education. I did a lot of sports. I like any sport, really. But it doesn't come like for you from a deep passion or expertise. Or if my my dream would be to be a strength conditioning coach for for Tom Brady, or is <laughs> <laughs> not into endurance sports. And I was from a different direction. But I ended up studying endurance athletes because among healthy people, you are the guys that have to face this fatigue the most. So you're perfect to study the phenomenon. Yeah. I, I do find it amazing that you haven't ended up being an endurance athlete because you grew up there. Yes. There, oh, yeah. An international cross country running, very close to where I come from. So yeah. And of course in Italy, we had a long history, not only aerobic, but for road cycling, of course, hence the work with my table. So yeah. we actually, we, and now I'm going to start a new project with ASICS. And so I'm going to start to work with some very high level 
doing the pillar. So I look forward to that. Yeah, I look forward to hearing hearing what you're doing that. So perhaps you could take the listeners through uh, what you presented at the Endurance Summit with your understanding of the physiological model and how the you're looking also at the uh, Sonico biological model of endurance performance and giving a little bit of context around what what is actually going on in the brain to I don't know, is it limiting or is it to our interpretation of fatigue and stopping us? And then maybe some of the, the practical applications. Yes. I know yes. that, I know yes. that there's, there's a line between art and science, but. Well, eventually most of the kind of more theoretical and mechanistic work that we do eventually is trying to develop uh, intervention, you know, to reduce fatigue and therefore improve performance in athletes or soldiers and for the patients in the future, hopefully improve their quality of life. So that's the ultimate goal. But I guess we're still, well, we, we did some interesting work, but we, there is a lot to understand from a very basic point of view yet. Yeah. So um, you're going to be working with ASICs, but I recall your presentation talking about Chip Colgi's pace yes. during breaking two, the, the yes. Nike project to break the two hour record. And then of course, Ineos came back and did it. Yeah. At 159 or something, but I, yes. I remember you saying, asking the question, what happened to his pace and why did it drop off? Yes. And then you talked a little bit about the, the, the beautiful time to exhaustion test that yes. us endurance athletes put yeah. ourselves through. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. Beautiful and often misunderstood, especially by my colleagues. So first of all, I think I tell you about the time to exhaustion test. So the time to exhaustion test, we put people at the set pace or in your case would be power output or pace or speed on the treadmill, whatever, but it's a fixed workload and uh, some maximal, of course. And then we ask them, okay, now you try to keep this speed, let's say on a treadmill for as, as long as you can. And for how long you can keep that speed, that's a type to exhaustion. By exhaustion, we mean the inability, or I would say perceived inability to maintain that, that speed. And a lot of people criticize that because in, uh, uh, yeah, but that doesn't really happen in, in, in real competition, but <laughs> I think that's actually not true. Okay. Obviously sometimes uh, doing competition, you have a variability in the pace, but when you're trying to beat your personal record or in the case of Kipchoge to go below the two hours, you have a standard. It's not what you decide. You need to keep that. By the way, it's 21.1 kilometers per hour <laughs> if you want to go below two hours. Yeah. The same thing is, uh, and this was a lesson that Sassi, the, the coach of my pay, taught me. In every race, apart from the very, maybe the, the, the guy who actually wins the race, for everybody else, it's a time to exhaustion test because in order to be able to win, you need to be able to keep up with the best <laughs> and keep their speed. It's not, uh, you, you don't always pace yourself as you like, you have to beat somebody else. So if you cannot sustain for the, over the race distance, the same pace of your direct competitor, then you're going to lose the, the medal. So it's a very, it's a very basic measure of endurance that is not really to any competition. But as I say, it's very simple. This, in science, you need to simplify things to control and be able to understand the factors a bit better. And traditionally, so we get back to the, the physiological model of fatigue that's been going on for over 100 years is that basically you stop exercise because you are physiologically unable 
to continue. Of course, th that this test assumes that you're highly motivated and you're used to exercise, not that you stop until when you feel a little bit of burning in your legs or your guys in your arms, shoulders. But when you get uh, motivated, active, that is used to exercise, the assumption is that you can actually push yourself to your physiological limit and therefore you stop for a physiological reason. In the past, uh, for example, for high intensity endurance exercise, such as the kind of exercise that you guys do in rowing, the idea was that there was like an insufficient, if you like, oxygen delivery, and as a result, a, a buildup of lactic acid in the muscle causing uh, muscle fatigue. Of course, now we know it's much more complex with that. That's the basics. And uh, so, of course, if that's the case, then you want to increase your ability to deliver oxygen to your muscles or increasing your, the volume of and, and function of your heart. You want to increase the ability of your muscle to extract oxygen. You want to increase the ability of your muscle to tolerate uh, high levels of lactic gas, all the kind of stuff. I'm sure guys, all you and your listeners have been I told think, yeah. over and over again. Yeah. I think there's the, the classic test, 2K, 5K, or for masters, it's one kilometer. The split, the watts you have to put out over that time. Yeah. And you're competing with yourself. Yeah. So you, what, I, what I'm understanding is I step on the machine, I'm well hydrated, all things physiologically, I'm going well, I'm trained, motivated, but I'm on there and I reach a point where I know I can't drive another stroke. I'm yes. physically exhausted. Yes. Is that what and you're that's exactly how it feels. Yes. And that's exactly how it feels. I mean, I've done it myself and it's, it feels like I, there's no way it's I can do more. I can continue. Yeah. But again, and that's actually, I think one of the reasons why people until I did it in 2010, didn't really test the, this basic assumption that the limit is physiological and that the reason why you stop is physiological, they didn't really test it because it totally feels like that. Mm. But you see, the key is in the world feels like that. that. The, the reality, people feel, ah, feelings are, I don't know, not real, it's something else and physiology is the real thing. No, guys, the world, your mind, everything is, is a product of our, con the, the reality as we live it is our consciousness. Yeah. Uh, and without going too philosophical, the feeling, oh, that cannot keep going is a very limited part of you guys, very important part of your consciousness, which is your reality. So it, it is as powerful as anything else. Of course, the fact that it is subjective makes this process build mystery. But that doesn't mean that it's disconnected from the real world. I mean, we know the assumption in modern cognitive neuroscience is that your, what we, our mind, our consciousness is the product of our brain. So it's, it's a natural phenomenon as much as producing we and taking a piece. And the brain is controlling the muscles, the muscle recruitment, everything that's going on inside the system. Yeah. And also, so there are two parts, which I think is important to understand also the psychological model, but maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. But since you ask, I'm going to give this snippet now. So there are, at biological level, there are two things that are important. One is the actual processes within the brain that generate your consciousness, your mind. And that could be for us, what we're interested in are things like perception of effort, motivation, 
positive of negative thoughts, anxiety, those kind of psychological phenomena. So you can study biologically now with the new imaging and all these kind of things. We can actually, I use EEG, you can use psychopharmacology. There are a lot of techniques to actually study that these are biological processes within the brain that at least are associated with this psychological, we call it constructs, you know, phenomena. But then of course, the, the brain is not disconnected from the body. So what's going on in the body, including muscle fatigue, you know, the traditional muscle fatigue that we've been talking about, of course, they will have an influence on processes in the brain. And therefore, they'll have an, a, 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 an effect on the way you feel. But the, I kind of turn upside down the concept because before we had this idea that the limit is purely physiological, that we could push ourselves to that limit if you are highly motivated, which obviously athletes are, and that feels like the perception of fatigue was more like a, an epiphenomenon, we call it in science, something that is correlated with the real phenomenon that is important. It's like the smoke coming out of, of, of the chimney of a steam train. You see it, and if you see it, it means that people may say, okay, the more smoke coming out, the more, the quicker go the, the train goes. And you, some people might think, yeah, but that's not what's pushing the train. That's the epiphenomenon, what comes out of the real mm-hmm. thing, which is the, the building up of the pressure in the steam mm-hmm. engine. So a lot of people have thought that things like perception of effort, like epiphenomena, correlates of the real thing or not. I, I, I think is that what I discovered is, you know, is the other way around. Actually, the, or the way I explain things is actually first, what really limits performance is your, we will talk about the native perception of that. And then you have to understand what are the physiological processes that, that influence your perception of effort. but the ultimate causal mechanism that limits your performance is actually the perception of effort. It's not just an epiphenomenon of lactic acid and heart rate and all these kind of things that, uh, because if you feel that way, then you don't care about things like perception of effort, like I did. I, when I was before having this revolution in my mind, I was very much a very traditional SSS physiology in that respect. I'm, I'm going to give you, I don't think I'm going to talk about this in a podcast and, uh, but you may edit these things if, if they're not of interest to you all, but the guy is called Gun, Professor Gunnar Borg that invented the, the scale that we use to measure perception of effort, the RPE scale, rating of perceived exertion scale, actually came to Bangor while I was a PhD student to do a two-day workshop that was organized by my head of school, Professor Roger Eston, which was very interested in RPE, more from a practical point of view. So he, he, he organized this workshop for basics for the British Association of Sports and Science Sciences. And as a PhD student in the school, I could attend the workshop for free. Well, I didn't go because I thought, ah, well, that's not serious science. I don't care. I didn't go. So I saw Bob and said, oh, okay, I'm bored. Okay, nice to meet you. That's it. So now, unfortunately, he's dead. I guess in peace, but I will give my leg to go to a, to a, to that workshop <laughs> with, with Gunnar Borg. And in those days, just to, was exactly like a lot of my detractors as well is, nah, no, nah, it's all physiology. This 
technological stuff is all, yeah, fancy. Something that you need, that you measure on a scale asking people is not something serious, right? But then I, obviously I changed my mind and perception value is one of those things that despite the only way we can measure it is a very simple scale where you point on, on with your finger, how you feel is actually, despite the simplicity of the measurement, it's probably the most complex, also the most important factor in a new performance. Wow. But how, why can we say that? The reason is that we did studies that, and not only me, then there's been other people doing this, they actually challenged this idea this, that the physiology is the limit. So for example, I did a study on cycling to exhaustion and, and, the, and the people were cycling at about 250 watts. And immediately after exhaustion, I measured their maximal power yeah. to, to quantify the muscle fatigue. So I measured their maximal power before the time to exhaustion test, and it was about 1000 watts. Then they did their to exhaustion at 250 watts, and then I repeated the maximal test. And in theory, they should have done 250 watts, no more than that, right? The reality, they did 750 watts. So of course there was significant muscle fatigue because they went from 1000 watts to 750. I mean, it's a 25%. Reduction was that, was that immediately after the time during no rest. And so there was muscle fatigue for all the reasons that we know, but the muscle fatigue did not clearly did not directly limit the, they didn't stop because they were not able to do 250 watts because they did 750. So, so they've got something in reserve. Absolutely. And that was uh, the first piece of evidence that is being replicated by other people. Another one, which I think is, was very surprising to me, but has been published in Journal of Physiology, it's one of the top journals in our field by a professor Calbe from, from Spain that worked many years with the Scandinavian. So he's an expert in this technique called muscle biopsy. So you immediately, again, immediately after exhaustion, they took a piece of the muscle, it's called a muscle biopsy, and they measure how much energy was left. Because another common idea that I'm sure your listeners have, have heard about is this idea that you cannot run out of energy. That's why right. you can normally <laughs> a certain, a certain, a certain speed. Although I think this is more, probably more relevant to things like longer duration events, like a marathon, for example. Okay. But the, they measured the, how much energy was left at exhaustion and exhaustion was actually at the end of the view to max test. So you do this incremental test. Until you cannot keep going anymore. Oh, well, familiar. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so it's an intensity that is close. I should probably go a little bit higher at the end. Of the kind of intensity that you guys work at, and at the source, so one hundred percent due to max, they measure the how much energy was left, and they calculated for how long the subject could have kept going with that energy at view to max. At one, and the answer would over be your answer. But you saw my, my presentation, but uh, if, uh, before you saw those presentations, I, what would you say? Well, I would say there's nothing left, but if they've tested Seven. it, maybe five, 10%. Yeah. No. Seven to eight minutes at 100% exhaustion after stopping the VO2 max test. So, so you're, you're, 
So it seems like you're saying the amount of energy they could technically propel them for another seven or eight minutes. Yes. At a hundred percent. Yes. Of course, that would be true only if, like many people believe, they still believe that the limit was purely bioenergetic. Yeah. Of course, that's a calculation that is based on the assumption that what is limiting you is amount of energy in your muscle, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. clearly not. Yeah. But if you went with that theory, yeah, you, you could have kept going for another seven to eight minutes after exhaustion. And again, if I ask you, for how long can you keep this at exhaustion attribute of my stay? You tell me, well, you tell me <laughs> not even three seconds, I'm done. Yeah. So there is basically a disconnect between how we feel and the physiological capacity of, of your body which I think, and we'll get back to that later when we talk about the practical application is in a way, it's a very good news yeah, yeah. because if you reach your physiological limit, the only way you, you would have to improve your performance would be to improve your physiological capacity, which by the way, is still very important. You can, you keep doing that. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that it seems that we don't reach the, our physiological limit, that means that you can do other things apart from increase your physiological capacity to, to, to gain performance, because there is a, as you say, a reserve, there is a, there is a buffer that is kind of unused. <laughs> and I think actually the, well, that's demonstrated by the, the results of several studies and but the, some people have an issue with that. For example, if you believe another theory that puts the brain in the center, which is the central governor theory of professor Tim not, then you would think, oh my God, mm, maybe that's not a good idea that I try to dig into that reserve because it's a core principle, although recently has modified the theory in a way that, uh, contradicts in, in the core principle that you, they proposed some years ago now, but the core principle is that you have that's in the brain, the reason why you stop before you reach your physiological limit. It's because there's this mechanism in the brain called central governor that stops you before you basically kill yourself or damage yourself with exercise. So it's like a protection mechanism mm -hmm. that is there to, you shouldn't, you shouldn't dig into that limit basically because it's dangerous. That's the core piece. And it's at, at least in its original version. This is a subconscious mechanism. It's not something you have a control of. Also, because obviously if you had a control over it, it would be dangerous. So you want to have something that is, uh, subconscious. So, but I don't think that's the case. What, what do you think it is? I don't think that the, okay. So in science, when you explain a phenomena, there are two explanations for phenomena. Okay. One, and which is the one, to be honest, that, that I'm most keen. Because it's the one that can have more, I guess, practical application is we call it the proximate explanation. So the mechanisms, so how things work. The other one is called the ultimate explanation for a phenomenon, which is more the, the purpose of something, right? And the purpose, a lot of people make this mistake. So I'll give you an example. Why do, why the heart rate goes up with exercise? Uh, a, a, a ultimate, actually a wrong ultimate explanation because it's a theological explanation is, ah, the heart goes up because the muscle need more oxygen. 
there's no a scientific explanation. It makes sense. That's not a scientific, the heart doesn't know that, you know, it's, it's not something thinking that, oh, the muscle needs more, so I, so I should increase my heart, uh, known heart. No, you study physiologically what's going on. Like there are some signals from the brain, from the muscle, they go to the center in the brain, they control heart rate, blah, blah, blah. So it's a mechanistic explanation. And but the ultimate explanation, they can be useful and interesting when you look at them from an evolutionary point of view. And I guess it's, it, it can make sense that you, you have like a, a system prevents you from over exercising yourself. Yeah. However, having said that, there are plenty of examples where people can over exercise themselves. So yeah. that suggests to me that this central governor doesn't really exist. For example, if you have a, a, a like a coronary heart disease, for example, I mean, you can get into a, a, a situation of ischemia just by going up one flight of stairs and you've yeah. got this the angina and there's nothing, the central governor should stop you before doing that. Or for example, the athletes that almost uh, get, some, some people even get killed or they get seriously healed with heat illness. Well, you shouldn't be able to get to the point. You should have the central governor stopping you from becoming Avoid going too far to heat stroke. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't. And, uh, so I think actually that the brain regulation of exercise is more to do with, it's nothing to do with competition also because when we evolved, there was no really competition. It's more to do to make sure that we do not spend too much energy, but not doing the exercise itself. But over weeks, months, years, because when we evolved, there was not much food around. So if we wasted energy by doing physical activity for no reason, which that's something you would do if you didn't have any feeling of fatigue, you would just maybe run around all day for no reason whatsoever, just for fun. Okay. But uh, can we develop this feeling of effort and fatigue to stop from doing things that don't have a, a purpose, a goal? And in those days, the main goal was to find food, find a woman and reproduce and fight your enemy and wouldn't survive. So I think, so it's, I don't think that it's a, it's a protective mechanism to protect you doing exercise itself. We have a lot of other mechanisms that do that, but those are physio well-known physiological mechanisms. For example, if it's hot, you exercise, you sweat. Yeah. If you run, you increase your ventilation. So there are a lot of things going on to protect you doing exercise, but the perception of effort and fatigue, I don't think it's, it's one of them. Perception of effort is limiting performance, but the purpose of this limitation, yeah, is not to stop. It's not to preserve yourself. Even yourself doing this, when you do exercise is to reduce the amount of energy that you spend doing exercise. Because if you do that every day for weeks and months and years, you're going to be much leaner than a guy that doesn't do that. And then when you get uh, an injury or an infection and you are very lean, you're going to die because you cannot eat and you have to spend energy to get, to recover, get healthy and fight the infection. The guy that is a little bit fatter because he hasn't been running around all day, <laughs> every day, he will survive. So. The guy that developed this feeling, that was good to survive. But now that we have evolved that feeling of effort and fatigue is limiting our endurance performance, but it's not a system designed to 
with athletes in mind. And yeah. when it evolved, it was very useful uh, yeah. for to avoid yeah being being too lean and therefore the infection and injury and other stuff. But anyway, let's go back to the yeah. So, so maybe if we go back to perception of effort, and I remember seeing your slide with Paula Radcliffe. And then you go through the rating of perception of effort and potential motivation. Yes. I think actually one important thing, and because you guys as well, they have a lot of experience with this and growing more than, for example, Anders, is to differentiate between perception of effort and pain. A lot of people often mix the two. And the reason is that, especially doing high intensity exercise, you feel both. <laughs> so when you do it, like a, 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 a rowing competition, you have both feelings at the same time. You also have other things. You feel hot. If it's hot, you, know, you, you have a lot of feelings. You have a feeling of muscle tension. There are a lot of subjective uh, sensation when you do exercise. Things, you hear the sound of the, of the roll going into the water, et cetera, et cetera. But the key, the two key ones are perception of effort and pain that people mix. And those are very different, both from a subjective point of view, but also neurophysiological. So by perception of effort, I mean the feeling of how hard it is to perform the task, in your case, to row. Yeah. And by the way, overall perception of effort also includes the perception of how heavily you're breathing. So it's not just the effort in your case with the arms, back, but the whole body, legs, yeah, but is also the feeling of how heavy you're breathing. By pain, and I mean, I'm talking about exercise-induced muscle pain, not injury pain or other stuff, is that aching and burning sensation that you have and with very high-intensity exercise. I'm sure you're all very familiar with that. And at least in the study, I haven't done studies with rowers, but we have done studies with high-intensity cycling exercise, which is also a kind of exercise that is it has high level of exercise-induced muscle pain, okay, in the legs, of course. You feel that your legs really burning when you go high intensity. And we found that, of course, you feel this pain is unpleasant, yeah, during high-intensity exercise. But it's, it doesn't become so unpleasant that you stop the exercise because you want to stop the pain. You stop exercise because you feel that you cannot keep that pace. Not because the pain is unbearable, right? I understand. Yeah. So if, if I induce the pain that you feel during rowing without the effort, so if I just inject, inject, and actually I can do that, inject something in your muscle that make you feel the muscle burning as much as when you do your, you know, 2000 meters all out and try whatever you do. Yeah. You're going to, yeah. It's high, it's, it's unpleasant. It's quite a strong pain. You wouldn't stop because you cannot bear that pain. You know what I mean? In fact, we, there are higher level of pain that, that I'm sure you would be able to, to endure in order to, for me to torture you and tell you, tell me that uh, where your wife is, because I'm going to kill her in order to make you speak Well, you probably never speak, but in order to make you speak, I would have to induce much more pain than the pain that you feel when you're rolling. So that's the same thing. You feel this pain, that's very important. Indirectly, it may contribute to perception of effort, and I'll tell you later why, but it's not the reason why you stop. The reason why you stop is because 
you feel like you cannot keep that amount of work, sustain that amount of work any longer, which is a completely different set of feeling and thoughts. Yeah. So that's important. And the other distinction, which is more kind of physiological is that the sensation of pain as a size induced muscle pain comes from your muscles. When you accumulate, for example, lactic acid in your muscle, there are some receptors in the muscle that sense the high level of lactic acid and send signals to the brain processes the signals. And what comes out of that processing is your feeling of burning muscles, aching muscles, burning, aching muscles. What, what can we do about that though? Because the feeling or the sensation, emotion is, is driving most people to stop. But do you think that people stop because of the pain or because they feel they cannot keep going at that pace? Because it's complete. One is passive and one is about, oh, I cannot, I could keep going, but I cannot stand this pain. So I stop. I think, I I think, think it's that. a bit of both, Sam. I think I've seen people and fall off the ergometer after a 2K test. Yeah. And they're both in, they perceive they're in pain. Yes. As, and, and they feel they can't keep going. No, that's for sure. As I said, you, especially doing high intensity, do exercise, you definitely perceive both. What I'm saying is I'm not denying that that's a reality really? and quite high level of pain from zero to 10 scale. It's at high pain. However, we, we, with the study for, uh, okay, now I have to explain the study. So you understand. So what we did is we did a task that is only pain, no effort. This task is you put your hand in icy water. For as long as you, for as long as you can, meaning for as long as you can tolerate, there's no effort. I mean, obviously there is mental effort, but there's no physical effort. You take the, uh, the hand out of the water when the pain is becomes intolerable. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we said, okay, you remember the pain, the unpleasantness of the pain when you decided to take your hands off the water. Yeah. That was your maximal tolerable pain. That's 10. Then we put them on the bike and we did the time to exhaustion test. At exhaustion, the rate is six. That's a okay. That's a very unpleasant pain, but it's not a level of pain because they will be able to stand 10. It wasn't as unpleasant as the pain that motivated them to take the eyes off the water, but their perception of effort was on the six to 20 scale, 20 is the maximum effort. It was 20. So they stopped because they felt they reached their maximum capacity to continue to cycle the maximum effort, but the pain, it was very high. It was unpleasant, but that was not the reason why they stopped. If they could kept going, if they felt that they could have kept going, they would have, and they would have sustained more pain, but they reached a level of pain 10 which is a maximum tolerable pain. So yeah. there's something then going on between the difference of fatigue and pain then. Yes. Yes. In the interpretation. And it's difficult. That's driving me to stop. And yes. And because I also remember there's a, a very famous diamond skulls race in Henley, Drysdale versus Bosch. And the gentleman from Norway. Yes. In the last hundred meters, just, and he was in front, looked like he came to a complete standstill. When Drysdale just drove on relentlessly through to win. Yeah. And it looked like he was physically at his finish. 
he couldn't go on anymore. Yes. He stopped before the completion of the yes. race. Yes. So that's a, that's a perception of effort. It's the mental interpretation. I must stop. Yes. And it's because you experience them both at very high level during rowing, the pain and the effort, it's difficult to distinguish the two, but they are different. You can distinguish the two. For example, there are study. If I, I make you cycle and I uh, do an anesthetic in your lumbar spine, you won't feel any pain in your leg during cycling because I stop the signal from the muscle to your brain. I stop it at the spinal level. Okay. You know what? You still feel effort. Your effort doesn't go down. It goes up actually a little bit. And you know why? Because unlike pain, the perception of effort is generated from within the brain sense. So what you perceive as effort is not what's going on in the muscle, which is represented with this pain. Yeah. Effort represents basically how wild is your brain driving the muscles. So in order for you to produce, to go at the speed that you want to go or to keep the speed that you need to win the race or whatever, you need to, the muscle by themselves do nothing. Okay. You need to send signals from the brain to the muscles. We call it central motor command. And what we perceive as effort are neural signals that are proportional to the central motor command. So every time that we send the signal to the muscle, we also send a signal to sensory areas of the brain that process the signal and create this perception of effort. So what you perceive as effort is how well your brain is working to drive the muscles. And of course, if the muscles are fatigued, in order to keep the speed, you have to, you have to drive them harder, right? And that's why over time, it's not the only reason, but one of the main reasons why perception of effort increases over time. At the beginning of the race, it doesn't feel as hard as the, as the end, right? But even if you keep a constant pace, they say you you do a perfect, I don't know, don't know what's the perfect pacing. If you want to try your breaking, uh, your, your, uh, personal best on the air code, what you, what you guys suggest to do a, a, a constant pace or, or your PB, what's your, uh, I, I like to do a constant pace. Okay. So. Let's say you do a constant pace after the first 500 meters, it doesn't feel as hard as during the last 500 meters, right? Certainly not. Exactly. And one of the, so that means that your perception of effort increases over time. Because that's actually the kind of fatigue that I'm interested in. But, uh, but it's the perception, isn't it? Because the physical yes. effort is static on holding the same pace. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So for the same output, you feel more effort. And one of the reasons why you feel more effort is because your muscle gets fatigued in order to produce the same power output, you need to drive your muscle harder. So your brain is working harder because if you kept driving the muscle at the same intensity and your muscle get fatigued, then you, your power output goes down. So in order to keep the power output, despite fatigue, you have to increase this neural driving, we call it center motor man. And that's what you perceive. Okay. One of the main reasons why you perceive this, this effort. So this is already tells you that what's going on in the brain is not independent of what's going on in your body, because what's going on in the brain and increase in this center motor command 
which I then perceive as effort, the reason why I need to increase the motor command is because my muscles are fatigued. So if I train my muscle like you guys do to make them more resistant to fatigue, this increase in perception of effort over time or the perception of effort that I feel at a given power is less than if I wasn't trained. So, and this is why it's important that you keep training your body because if you have a fit body, it's going to require less pushing from your brain to, to perform at a certain level. Okay. And therefore your perception of effort will be lower and you'll be able to keep that power output for longer and maybe by training you will be able to keep a high power up for the whole distance of the race and you win and you get your personal best. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's one of the practical applications then is to keep training. Absolutely. Also keep doing the stuff, the kind of diet to make sure that you have glycogen in your muscles, all those kind of things. And so anything you've, you've done so far based on the traditional physiological model is still relevant in a different way, but it's still relevant because as I said, a, a, a trained body, a fit body, and a lot of it is, is also due to genetics. I mean, I can train myself as much as I can and the, I'm not gonna feel very good at 21.1 kilometers per hour keep short, okay? Because he has a different body from mine, okay? So genetics, of course, is also important, but let's say you work with what you have, Keep working at it, at it as you did. Everything that people told you is still relevant. Not exactly because of the reason they told you before, because muscle fatigue is not the limiting factor, but muscle fatigue is one of those factors that affect perception of effort. So all things being equal, Sammy, if we keep the, the physiology the same, yes. like, you know, there's just states and baselines. We, we carbon copy last year's training program, yes. same volume, strength training. Diet's good, sleep's good. Yeah. We keep training. What are some of the other things that we need to pay attention to in order to keep yeah. the brain functioning in a way that we yeah. can? And that's where the good news is, because if the physiological model was true and you just did your nutrition, your training, your whatever, based on the traditional physiological model, that's it. There's nothing else you can do. There's nothing else you can do because that's, if that's what directly limit, limiting your performance, that's all you can do. Mm -hmm. The good news is that although all those factors are very important, they're important because they affect, according to my model, because they affect perception of effort. Therefore, if you can find other ways to reduce perception of effort, even if they're nothing to do with oxygen consumption, lactic acid glycogen in your muscle, mitochondria, cardiac mass, and whatever. If I can reduce your perception of effort in another way, you're going to improve your performance. Even if your physiology from the neck down, if you like, stays exactly the same. And I think that's the good news about this model because it justifies and also has inspired some work or evaluation, some old work in certain cases that gives the endurance athletes additional things to do in order to improve their performance. The first one is based on actually, I was the, the adult, yeah, there was some initial, very initial data in, in a very old book and um, published 1891, where this professor, an Italian professor 
did the study uh, on two of his colleagues and found out that they were performing physically less well after giving all day lectures instead of when they were fresh in their mind, but he only did a couple of people that did it really. I did, and then, and then nobody, nobody cared about, we call it mental fatigue for more than 100 years until your know, truly Samuel Macroga decided, hmm, no, no, let's study this mental fatigue and physical performance properly. And I did uh, a study, it was published in 2009, and since then, both myself and other groups have published um, other studies. And this is, we found that not only muscle fatigue can affect your perception of effort and therefore your endurance, also mental fatigue, full fantasy, completely different mechanism, but the final effect is that mental fatigue increases your perception of effort and therefore limits your endurance performance, reduces your endurance performance. Actually, from the, the data that are out there, it seems that the effect is very similar to the effects of muscle fatigue. So if mental fatigue is affecting your endurance performance by increasing your perception of effort, of course, the first practical application is that you need to arrive at the race, not only with non-fatigue and well-rested muscles, but also with well-rested brain and mind. And actually, this is not as easy as it sounds, because of course, I mean, the, the way we mentally fatigue people, we ask them to do very difficult cognitive tasks at the computer. And people say, yeah, okay, well, who, yeah, who cares? Because nobody does these kind of tasks before a competition. Yeah, of course, this is just a way we use to use fatigue. Yeah, but you can be the master's rower. You can have a couple of hard days at work. Drain exactly. The logic. Exactly. Especially not, your, yeah, especially your audience, I guess, most of them professionals. Yes. Yeah, so, and, and then we go to a race on Saturday and we're, the, yeah. you know, we're just mentally. Yeah. You're driving, you have to deal with logistics and stuff like that. And also you mentioned briefly before the sleep, a, a lot of people are anxious. There is anxiety. So it's not actually so easy to sleep well the day before mm -hmm. an important competition and Lack of sleep or reduced sleep by itself has a negative impact on performance. But what people don't know is that there's only not only a direct effect, a negative effect on performance, by the way, through an increasing perception of effort as well, hmm? but it also makes you more mentally fatigable, if you like. Yeah. So yeah. when you haven't slept very much, if you do something that is mentally demanding, you become fatigued much more quickly than if you slept well the night before. So you, if you don't sleep well, again, that's bad. And on the top of that, if you have to do things in the morning to prepare and other processes, mental processes I'm going to describe in a minute, you're going to become even more mentally fatigued. So sleeping well the day before, which is not as easy as it sounds, is, is very important for two reasons. However, Another thing that is very mentally tiring is regulating your behavior, if you like, to, uh, especially in inhibiting automatic behavior or impulses or emotions. So for example, I'll give you an example. If you're very stressed, if you're very anxious, very nervous, but you don't want 
your main competitor know that you are anxious, worried, and nervous because you don't want him to, to think that you're weak and yeah. And that's, you are going to control your emotions. You're not gonna, you have to push yourself to pretend that you're calm and, and relaxed yeah. when you're, you're bottling things up. You're bottling up your body things up. Yeah. Bottling things up is one of the, of the most mentally tiring things that people can do. And that, of course, sometimes that, that can be, a, you don't want your competitor to know. So my suggestion is you have, you can do two things. First of all, work. And again, you can work with a sports psychologist or there is a lot about the, you can read about how to reduce a competition anxiety so that you arrive at the competition, less stress. So you don't have anything to hide. Okay. That's one strategy. Uh, the other one is that if you're still stressed and instead of bottling it up, find maybe some space where you can express your emotion without people that you don't want, you know, to know. So give yourself like a safe space where you can express your emotion, be Italian, and therefore you don't get this, you don't spend any mental energy in controlling your emotion and you can spend it all in your, in your competition. So that's the first suggestion based on, on, on my research and the model. The second one is, and again, this is something that I don't understand. It was really underutilized. And I guess my, my research and the research of a lot of other colleagues or other groups made this resurface is the fact that psychological skills, which some really simple techniques like motivational self-talk, imagery learning where to focus attention in an optimal way. These are kind of basic sports psychology techniques that have been used a lot with kind of team sports or skill sports like gymnastics and golfing. And I don't know, with, with endurance artists, they've never really been used very much because again, even the psychologists, I think they thought, yeah, by endurance, it's not really a skill sport. It's all about lungs and legs and heart. So who cares? But now we provide even more rationale for working with these techniques because we found that the limit seems to be really the brain. So one simple way is to learn some of these simple techniques. I, again, with the work of a good sports psychologist, or there are some good books out there that you can use. For example, we did some research with motivational self-talk. Mm-hmm. The treatment itself was a visit, a single visit with a sports psychologist like 20, 30 meters, like two weeks of practice during training of this motivation self-talk, that's it. And we found a significant improvement in endurance. And that was associated with a reduction in perception of effort. You kind of really made yourself believe in a way that you had a better capacity and definitely it, felt, it, 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 it actually felt easier to, <laughs> in that case was cycling test to cycle then also I think often the, for example, the motivational self-talk, one of the tricks it does is that not only, although there, there, there are some now evidence that is something specific about it, but sometimes the trick is that you reduce the amount of negative self-talk that a lot of people have spontaneously, and especially maybe at the end, yeah. when you feel really tired and pain. A lot, you're putting a lot of effort. You see the other guy, the other boat on the side. It maybe looks fresh and it keeps going. All this kind of, you start to 
And, and we know, and it is, there is a lot of research that this negative, spontaneous negative self-thought can be, can be a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you like, and make your performance even worse than what, than what it is. So if by simply by substituting this negative self-talk, you can do a lot of good in your performance. I saw some of the, your self-talk statements that you recommend for the listeners. It's hang on in there, come on, get up, go for it, go for it, dig deep, push it. You're a winner. You can do it. Keep going. Be strong. These were some of the things that I, you yep. said time to exhaustion at 80%. People that said that, those cues. Yes. Those were at least that we suggested that you can also pick up the ones that if those don't resonate with you, you can pick yeah, up with your you. individual. That's what the psychologist did in this first session. But then again, it seems, oh, okay, I'm just telling you, you really need to practice because uh, the reason is that you want this positive self-talk or motivational self-talk because there are different kinds of self-talk. Yeah. There's not just the, this motivational kind. You want this motivational self to come out automatically, naturally, if you like, mm -hmm. and replacing the negative self-talk because if you have to think about it, then it becomes a, a mental effort which may make you mentally fatigued. No, you want this, you want to practice this in training. So then when you are during the, during the, the competition, this positive motivation self-talk comes out naturally and substitutes your negative one so without this, any mental effort. So could you be using anchors and visual cues, a positive mental anchor that makes you feel good. It's associated with winning. I remember a colleague of mine saying he has a smiley emoji <laughs> on the deck of the boat, where it's a mental anchor for him that's personal to him and inspires him without even thinking. He looks at it, boom, he's got the sense of Yeah, yeah. Some people can have images of, uh, again, that becomes more, it's more use or even more sophisticated imagery, which is another technique that seems to work. And but it's interesting you mentioned this uh, smiley face because we actually did a study where we actually showed smiley faces to people doing an, an endurance and again, high intensity endurance task. And actually, it, it, actually they didn't even see them. Uh, it, you're listening, if you go on Google and you put fatigue and New Yorker, the famous American magazine, you will find an article by Alex Hutchinson about this study. And there is also like a short video of this. So it, it, we call it what we call subliminal message. So they were, okay, it's quite complex. Basically these people didn't even know that they were seeing it because there's some questions in front of them, right? Yes. But they were not seeing that. They were, they saw other things they felt we did. They didn't, they didn't even know the purpose of the study. We just told them, okay, when you're doing the, the test, just look at the screen and look at these things going on in the screen. That's it. We told them, we want to see the effects of this cognitive stuff on your, or paying attention to things on your physiological response. They didn't know that we are actually interested in their perception of effort and performance. And even by subliminally sending these smiley faces opposed to sad faces, we are able to improve their performance. And the reason is that, and we know that, I mean, if you go in a good mood into a race, yeah, good mood in general, associated with feelings energetic. And everything feels easy to do. Yeah. And the bad mood, the pressure when you're sad and depressed, 
everything can be a struggle. You need, you have to force yourself to do things. In fact, fatigue is one of the main symptoms of depression. And the brain is very sensitive to faces. Some people even think that it's a specific part of the brain or the visual cortex that is associated with perception of faces. Because of course, a lot of the communication between us is through body language and faces, super important, right? So we are very sensitive to this. And it seems that even subconsciously, you can influence performance. I was, sometimes I joke, you, you may even have some, maybe if there is any computer nerd among your audience, <laughs> they might now think, hmm, I'm going to create an app that I'm going to send to my competitor, maybe an app about, I don't know, good looking women or something about training. I don't know. And then in the middle of it, I flash them sad faces before the competition <laughs> because no one than me. <laughs> Actually, by the way, we are, I'm, I'm actually um, doing a study about this. So not how to use the brain, the how people will use it may be unethical, but not how to use techniques to improve your own brain, but techniques to screw up your competitors' brain. Uh, which, you know, and you said that, obviously they're not ethical, but I mean, athletes do it all the time. I mean, think about the team sports, defend them with the things that they tell them. It's it, maybe rowing is different. Yeah. Uh, and I also want to put, uh, I can send you the link maybe. We try to make it accessible to also to well-educated athletes and coaches. It's a bit sciencey. It's not really a pra super practical book. There are some bits that are practical, but there is a book, which is about the psychology of endurance mm -hmm. and I can give you a link. And so all, um, because motivation self-talk is on one of these techniques, there is a, a basic collection, different chapters on different techniques and the science behind them in terms of specific to endurance athletes. And if it is a bit sciencey, you may get something good out of it. So I'll, I'll send you a link of that book so you can actually have some resources or otherwise, yeah, just see a good sports psychologist and he can help you. So we've got the avoid mentally draining activities. Yeah. You've got the positive self-talk and then we get into some fun things like psychostimulants. Yes. Caffeine. Yes. Dopey so, or espresso. Well, yeah. <laughs> Brain doping in a way. So but a lot of things, actually the very first the very first brain doping was pervitine, which is the first amphetamine developed by the Nazis. And everybody associates that more with, again, they think about, oh, it's in terms of stimulating the heart and the circulation. It's, it's now we know the main effect is actually by reducing perception of effort. Of course, that's in the doping list, so don't use it. Same thing, things like, so all the amphetamines, they are forbidden, don't use them. Modafinil, it's a drug that is used with narcolepsy, so people that fall asleep in the middle of the day, don't use it, that's doping. Good news is that, there is a substance that is in the, with the right dosages is as effective, those other drugs, and it, it, it's not in the doping list, not anymore at least, which is caffeine. Mm. And again, if you want to use it to improve your athletic performance, I suggest, although obviously being Italian, I, I, I love uh, a, a good cup of strong coffee, but in order because the content of caffeine coffee can be very variable. I would suggest that people use other tablets or capsules or nowadays they're also chewing gums. Really and, uh, yeah. Good. But, but that's something more for, if you want to take these kind of during the race, 
But for you guys, I mean, you don't do good. Do you do what? Some there are some good trend duels, but the kind of races that you guys do, it, it's okay just to take your coffee just before the race. So I would suggest they use the capsule or the tablets. And so you have to take them about at least half an hour, between half an hour before the race to get the maximum concentration in your blood. And again, like anybody else, experiment beforehand. Don't do it for the first time before an important race. Experiment because, okay, the uh, most people with three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight is the dose that gets you very good performance results with very little if, or no jitters. Yeah. However, for some, some people may need more because they are less sensitive to caffeine. Some people may need less. So experiment and find the, the dose that gives you, you will feel it. You will see a reduction in perception of effort and, but without the jitters, yeah, as you said. So that's again, and I've seen, for example, a lot of people who use these gels and stuff, often the dosages are not high enough. Yeah. And, and so it's important that the dosage and the timing with the competition, according to these guidelines that I just gave you. And again, just experiment beforehand, just to make sure that you individualize your dosage. And have a bright endurance training. So. Yeah. And now we are getting a little bit more, so more experimental stuff. The, okay. away from a coffee to it. Yeah. Yes. So now there are two other things that you can do. One is something you can do at what some people usually also do in training. But that's more for strength training. What we found, the research that we did, we apply as a, if you like, a pre-competition strategy, and it's still very experimental, but in certain, with a certain setup, it seems to work, which is, it's called TDCS, Transcranial Direct Current Stimulation. And it's kind of like a fancy thing that maybe some of your, I mean, you can buy it. I mean, I think it's called, what is called? It looks like a. Uh, hey, uh, uh, he, 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 yeah, yeah. Halo, Halo is called, but by the way, I, I'm not endorsed in the product because it doesn't stimulate the brain in the way that we did and found to be effective to increase endurance. So I'm not suggesting you guys to go and buy this device because it's not stimulating the brain. And it, this thing, you need to stimulate the brain in a certain way to have good results. Okay. And so the way we did it is that you stimulate both, it's called motor cortex on both sides, of course, and you put the anode. So the anode is the part of the, because you have a cathode at the anode, no? but for the current to go from positive and negative side. And so you put the, the anode on the brain. So they makes you, basically what does, what it does, it makes your, your cortex, your motor cortex more excitable. Okay. Easier to activate. Mm -hmm. And then you put the cathode on the shoulder. So you don't do any negative effect on other sides of the body. Okay. And what we find, the reason why, what we find is that it reduces perception of effort and increases endurance performance. And the reason why we think it does that is because what happens is that if you, if your motor cord, which is the part of the brain, the signal to the muscle is easier to activate. You, you need less input into it. So your brain has to work less hard in order to generate this motor command. And that's why when you perceive less effort, your endurance is improved. Okay. So this is not doping at the moment, but you will need to really and stimulate and reproduce the kind of 
stimulation that we did in our experiments. And of course, it's still at an experimental stage. So watch out for it because it may become a technique that is used and that it's more still experimental. The other one, which is the one that was, I did the research funded by the Minister of Defense is, it's called brain endurance training. This is something you do in training. Okay. And the, this actually, the concept is super simple. The idea is, again, is linked to my studies on mental fatigue is that, for example, you do have the training session on your, on the roaming machine. You wouldn't that, you wouldn't do that half an hour before a race, right? Because that would cause acutely would cause fatigue and you wouldn't do very well in your race. However, you do it systematically with, with the recovery in between the session through several weeks, if you yep. do that you get an adaptation to that exactly. You become more resistant to physical fatigue. It, it looks like you can do exactly the same with the brain. So if I add, I call it cognitive work. So if I add, if I make your brain work harder during training, I basically increase the stimulus, the training, the training load on your brain. And if you do it, you know, systematically over a period of several weeks in our style, we did 12 weeks, then you will have adaptation in your brain. Then again, will make you perceive less effort and improve your endurance performance. And the study that we did was again, as usual, we use cycling because it's easier to read the lab. And, and so it was not, there were no athletes, there were kind of normal fit people and they did the an hour of moderate intensity exercise three times a week for an hour, three times a week for 12 weeks, both groups, one group, there were usual, usual stuff, just not doing anything, just cycling. The other group did the cycling by the same time they did this mentally fatiguing task at the computer at the same time. So they did one hour of mentally fatiguing task three times a week on the top of the, of the cycling. And uh, so this, this increased the workload on the brain during the training session. And what we found is that already actually that there was already different at six weeks. And of course, even bigger at 12 weeks that despite the fact that physiologically they improved exactly the same. So their VO2 max improved significantly because they trained, but there was no difference in the improvement in VO2 max in the two groups. But despite the fact that physiologically they improved the same in terms of the endurance, the performance test. The people that did the brain endurance training, they added the cognitive workload. They did much better than the, uh, control group that just did the traditional training. So that's to prove the point that if you training your brain can improve your physical endurance. And of course, then how you actually do it practically, that's a little bit more, more, more difficult. We did it, uh, originally with a button on the handlebar, then, uh, in Follow-up studies, we developed an app that basically when you're running or marching with the soldiers, they, the stimuli, instead of being visual on the computer screen, there are sounds on the earphones and they had a little cl uh, flick button on the index finger that they pushed or not pushed, depending on the task, when they heard different sounds. Another one is that while you're doing the training session, they we tell you some words and you have to keep them in your, you have to memorize them okay, and keep it in your mind because at the end of the run, then we ask, okay, tell me how, as many words as you remember. 
it's actually, it's very, this is very hard to maintain even simple words in your brain for five, 10, 15 minutes while you are running or doing something like it, it, it's hard work, believe me. And so there are all these tricks that, that, that you can uh, use, but another one is also to on purpose, instead of saying, oh, especially for the, your audience, a lot of them may be professionals and maybe they're very tired, mentally tired at the end of the day, they've worked very hard and they said, ah, nah, you know, if I train today, I this in the evening or late afternoon, it's going to be a wasted session. Now I'm not going to do it. Actually, it may be true in terms of you, you wouldn't be able to do a very high intensity training session to stimulate your heart and muscles. So from that point of view, you want to train as fresh as you can. However, it may not be a wasted session because it could be an opportunity to train your brain, training a mentally fatigued state, although on this specific kind of brain neurosthenic, we don't have scientific data, but the theory is at least would suggest that training in a mentally fatigued state and force yourself to train in that state may be a very important training stimulus for your brain. I think that's a really practical application, Sam, because there's a lot of science that we've talked through, we've just talked through in the last hour and a half. That's a practical thing. If you're tired, write off the fact that it, you're not going to do any physiological best, but know that you're going to get a benefit in yeah. the brain. Yeah. However, however, keep in mind that the brain workload is still additional workload. So in the overall management of your training, if you don't want to be, you need to manage your overall workload, your physical stress that you have during training, but also if you add this kind of cognitive work to your training, that, but also the cognitive work of your life, because a brain level, it all adds up and workload or what we call the training load is important to give you the stimulus to adapt and to improve your capacity. However, too much of it without rest can induce what we call overtraining or more often. Okay. So, so you so, don't monitor, you need to use it, but be modulate any other kind of workload and, and, and take into account the overall workload so that you don't get excessively fatigued during your training. So assuming then that the role of sleep and rest is critical to let the brain yes. and the body recover. How about meditation? Is, is yeah, there is some uh, meditation, some certain kinds of sounds, music, and but there's not much science specifically, especially specifically in athletes. But what I'm talking about is something even more basic is that if you start to do brain endurance training in the mentally fatigued state, all this kind of stuff, that's really good, fine. But don't think that it doesn't adapt to your overall training load just because it's, it's mental. It does. So you want to modulate your training load so that it's challenging and it stimulates you, but you also need to have a recovery period. So if you're already training super hard, and on the top of that, you add, let's say, free session of brain endurance training, that may be too much. And then you may become chronically fatigued. So, and that leads to another application, which is the one that to monitor your training load, do not monitor only your mileage, your total work, power outputs, or heart rate or lactate. Also take into account 
there are two very simple ways of doing it. The first one, you can do a mood questionnaire once a week. It's good enough. I refer to the, maybe you, they say you do it on a Sunday and you do a mood questionnaire refer to the past week. And so that's a good uh, routine to do. The other one is at the end of each training session, take a record of how, how long the training session was. That's easy. But also uh, it's called session RPE. It's a zero to 10 scale where you rate basically how hard the training session you know, on average felt on that day. Then you multiply the two, you have an overall training load. Yeah. Uh, so just, just, just repeat that back to you. So I've understood you correctly. You, yeah. you take the time for the training session, let's say 60 minutes. Yeah. And then you multiply by the intensity, let's say six. The intensity by zone, you, uh -huh. yeah. The best thing to do is do this rating at the end of, of, after the shower. So you're not influenced by the last thing you did in your training session. So after the shower, you sit down and you, on the, you look at the scale. It, it goes zero to 10 again, I can send you a link with the, and, and then you give a rating based on that scale, how hard the training session was overall globally. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, even that number is very important to check, but you can do a further thing. You multiply that by the duration and that gives you an overall kind of training loads for that session. Then again, you can do it for multiple session a day, the weekly load, monthly load. You can calculate a lot of things, recovery, not recovery, monotony, you know, how variable is your training load? There are a lot of stuff like training peaks, for example, I think they started to introduce this metric in their, in their. So the um, of each one you can use a base yes. and then add a score. Yeah. So it's basically, okay. These all this technology, these toys, I'm especially man, we love that kind of stuff. And again, it it's very good. By any mean, look at your heart rate, look at your power output, but also take a record. It's not just, of course, you can feel it. You feel it even without writing the number down. But if you don't write the number down, you're not going to be able to monitor this. You're not going to yeah. remember how you felt three months ago. So take this, take down these numbers and use them to monitor your training, not only from a physiological perspective or biomechanical perspective, also from a psychological one. But by the way, I want to say something. Because it may be useful, especially for rowers. But you, you go. You also do a lot of interval training, right? Intensity interval training. Yeah. yeah. So another way. Again, we don't have. We haven't used this protocol in experiments. So I, I don't know if it. I don't have uh, solid data to say it works. I guess it would. And I mean, it's very practical. And it's this. And we did with some football teams and also with the soldiers because they use a lot of circuit training or, or interval training. So, for example, you do your, I call it four minutes, very high intensity on the rowing, and then you recover maybe for three minutes, and then you do another four minutes that, you know, four by four, let's say, okay. High intensity interval training. Most of the time in the recovery period, you, you do not have, you do a very light aerobic exercise to recover, right? What we did is during the recovery periods, instead of doing nothing or just doing low intensity aerobic, you do a cognitive task. So during the interval, you don't do a cognitive task. I mean, it's very hard to do it. You're doing pushing very hard, but then during the interval, you do a cognitive task. For example, on a, on a mobile phone, there are a lot of uh, apps and stuff that you can use to do some, something to keep you, keep your brain working. Because what happens is that we don't realize that when we do physical work, it, the brain is highly involved. I mean, we're doing brain training all the time. 
Because yeah. psychologically, a lot of training is hard. Yeah, especially certain sessions, right? And so it, it, even normal training is going to train your brain. But what happens with this is that so you have this high also physically, but also mentally demand during the interval. And you recover your body during the resting period, but you keep your brain working. So in that way, you increase, again, the cognitive workload of that interval training session by adding a few minutes of, of a cognitive task, a demanding cognitive task in the interval. So that's well, another, that is another practical application. Yeah, just, yeah. Yes. Tell me some of the gadgets you've mentioned, books that you'd recommend the readers. They're very interested in the name of books, any gadgets that you would recommend they could go out and buy? Well, I mean, as gadgets, I know it would be nice to, to at the moment, it's only experimental with any app, any, anything that make you do a, like a difficult cognitive task can be applied. At the moment, there are a lot of these, the duration of the task is, is short. You cannot change, you know what I mean? In fact, we develop a specific app when we work with the soldiers, but it's not commercialized, I'm afraid. The other one is, again, the technology is very simple. As I said, learn uh, psychological skills, like uh, fill these questionnaires. I can give you some. Okay. There are two books, I think, that they are, they actually talk about the science and some of these techniques, also about stories of athletes that kind of embody this kind of stuff we've been talking about. So they can be very, you know, nice to read. These are, these are Popular scientists, if you like. One is How Bad Do You Want It by Matt, Matt, Matt Fitzgerald. Matt Fitzgerald. How Bad Do You Want It? I mean, an excellent book. The other one is Endure by Alex Hutchinson. And both of them are quite successful books among the Endurance athletes. But in case, yeah, maybe sometimes always, I mean, you have been in your own kind of <laughs> separate from the runners and the triathletes and stuff. So, you may not have heard of it, of them. So I would suggest those. Then I send you a link of this book with the psychological techniques. Is is well, I can give you the title now. It's called Endurance Performance in Sport, Psychological Theory and Interventions. The author is Carla Mayhem, as actually a former colleague of mine. She's a sports psychologist. This one, I mean, it's a great book. Eh? Don't get me wrong. There are also a couple of chapters by yours truly here, but is it compared to the other two that I gave you earlier? It's more academic, if you like. Right, if you're not scared of science, there is also some practical stuff in it. You may not enjoy as much as I do the science bits, but the other two I gave you that are more entertaining. But there is a lot of really a lot of very good content in this one. And definitely, if you want to work with a sports psychologist, you can say, I work with you, but before before you work with me, you need to you, you read this book. You get this book, say, read this properly and then, <laughs> and then work with me. If you want me to pay you for counseling and stuff. So Sam, you've worked with Medbay, Essex. I see you've tested Ivan Basso, an amazing athlete. <laughs> In Greece, what do you think it is that you've observed that these really high performers do? that sets them apart from other athletes. And you've mentioned if you've got the same physiology, what is it that sets apart the Chris Beard, Frums, Ivan Bassos? What does um, they do that others don't? Well, I haven't done research on this. It could be, it's just my, my main, I'm not, I'm not going to give you <laughs> the, how can I say? What? One thing is awful, the other one less, less so. Okay. I think at the basic of it, these people have amazing genetics. Let's not forget that. I mean, these people have amazing genetics. 
and years of hard work on and training on their shoulders. However, even I give you this example of really, especially Kipchoge, right? Because I was at Monza when he tried the first time I was actually there. And of course, compare, that was the first time that they tried that kind of uh, format and the shoes were really revolutionary. And he missed it just by a bit. Then he did the second, well, two years later. So he's now a spring chicken, Kipchoge. He started to get old from a top elite athlete point of view. So if anything, physiologically, I would think it was less, obviously, I mean, amazing physiology. Yes. Yeah. For example, in, in Monza, the, the, the first attempt, uh, I don't remember his name now, but there were three, three, three athletes that tried the, to break the, and one of them, a lot of people say, well, why, we Nike, why Nike chose that guy? He did only, I mean, he was very strong, I think, uh, 10K runner, track, but he did only one marathon before. I mean, you need experience with a marathon. So the people, they say, why did they select him for this? And the reason is because physiologically, they measure all the YOTU max and running economy, lactate threshold, all this kind of thing. And it was really good. I, I don't have the data. I cannot, you know, say 100%, but... If and when this data will come out, I, I'm going to bank uh, $500 yeah, that of all the, the three guys that did the first attempt in, in Monza, Kipchoge was the one with the lowest numbers of the three. Still very good. Yeah. But no, and probably that guy was the guy with the best numbers. He, he, he went off the pace, Alpha Race. For sure. So, so what is it, the X factor that you call? I think the X factor is twofold. One is some probably genetic differences at brain level. They make these people perceive a higher intensity level as, but with lower perception of effort. So I think there is a, a, an autogenetics there. That, that's my guess. However, and again, that's the awful part of the message. The second attempt of Kichogi, physiologically, if it was as good as in Monza, probably worse. And to be honest, when I watched the race, and I watched both races, one I was there live, at the beginning of the race in Austria, where he broke the record, he had a bit of a crisis, let's say. You could see in his face, right? He wasn't comfortable. Then he, he, he went through it, and then he obviously managed to go to run below the two ups. But in Monza, he was smiling all the time until the very end when he started to drop. Okay, you could see the change in, in his facial expression. By the way, I've done some research on this facial expression of that, so I'm a bit of an expert in this. In, in Austria, he had a bit of a crisis at the beginning. Then in Monza, he didn't have. So I think actually, physiologically, I think it was actually probably worse in Austria than in, than in Monza. And of course, they improved the shoes a little bit, but the big step was in Monza, the shoes in, in Austria were not a miles better than the shoes in Monza. The big step was in Monza, not in Austria. Yeah. Because so what, and this is my hypothesis, but this is actually confirmed by Kipchoge himself, the difference between Monza and Austria. In Monza, there was, there were very few spectators because it was a by invitation only event. It's a big track. Yeah. And there were only, so this 
few hundred people on the Finnish Strait of Monza. So the rest of the circuit, there was nobody. And Kipchoge, if you read the interview, really complained that he didn't have the public chilling him up. That's why he wanted to do it in the park in Vienna, because then they was open to the public and there was people chilling him up, giving motivational support throughout the race. But can you believe that somebody even like him needs that kind of, this obviously is very highly internally motivated and the money, the prestige, and even him suffered the, the lack of the, the, the psychological support that the, a crowd, a chilling crowd can give you. I remember the interview. Absolutely. He said that was the difference. Exactly. I think there is another difference though. First of all, that the first time in Monza was the very first time that they tried that format. Mm -hmm. Again, the experience and the experience is very important. Also, the fact that he, he, he missed it very narrowly, he gave, this thing gave him a lot of confidence that he could do it. Mm -hmm. But Andy Jones, is a very, very, I mean, yeah, we disagree on a lot of things, but we have a personal kind of friendship or, and if I invited him to come and talk at the, at the conference in Bologna, because I think it's a good sign, even if I don't agree with a lot of his, the basic physiology approach that he, he uses it, but he said, because they asked him, do you think he can do it? Because it was a few, only a few weeks before Austria. And by the way, he worked within in, in mods. So he knows, he knows Kipchoge very well. And he said that he, that he thought he could do it because he's the only top level marathon runner that truly believed, not just say, truly believed that he could go below the two hours. We, in sports psychology, we call it self-efficacy. Yeah. And again, it seems something like this positive psychology bullshit, but it's bullshit if you pretend <laughs> That, but when you truly believe that you can do it, that's a powerful thing. And so I think that the previous experience and missing it narrowly, giving even the extra confidence, we call it self-efficacy, then we was truly able to do it. And that I, I think made the difference together with the chicken cow. So, so obviously you need that good genetics, but even people at the very top of the game they can still improve their performance by applying and utilizing to their advantage a good the psychology and the knowledge of how the brain works. And I think this is a good place to feel. I, I agree. I think practical applications, try out the brain endurance training, build up the endurance, avoid mentally draining activities before you're doing a test or a race. Make sure you get some good sleep and rest. And if you feel like you need to express yourself, do it in a safe way or get some help to help you. Don't bottle it up because that's draining. Positive self-talk and also the crowd, the cheering effect. Caffeine, my favorite. And if you want to monitor these things and start to track performance indicators, mood questionnaires are good. At the end of the training, how you described what to do with, with ranking the effort. I think you've given the audience some wonderful pearls of wisdom. How can the, the group connect with you? The same way they find you online. But if you want to follow me, well, you, you can Google my name. You'll find a lot of material, videos, articles about my research, etc. But uh, I'm also quite, of the social media. Uh, the best way to connect with me is actually Twitter. 
Samuele Marcora, one word, you can find me there. I, I tweet mostly about sport, but I also like Brexit and, and not much anymore because I, I, I kind of. And you like motorbikes too, man. And yeah, motorbikes and <laughs> stuff like that. And, but, but yeah, primarily science and. and well, good on you, mate. I really appreciate your time. I think it's been fantastic. Thank you for having me and for letting me speak. Join me next time when I'll be talking with one of the rowing world's most interesting people. And if you like this episode, you can subscribe so you never miss an episode in the future. Oh, and please, if you like it, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out. You can find out more about our unique training system and high-performance coaching by visiting whchambers.com.